I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Welcome to the live stream. I'm rushing to get things going today. It was a little bit of a delay. I'm sorry for being like 12 minutes late. But what I'm going to do today is play video clips of people, in my opinion here, mocking the cross of Christ and misrepresenting what the Bible actually teaches about how Jesus saves us. And I'm going to respond to those video clips. That's that's kind of what we're doing. That's the agenda today. Uh, My purpose in this is to disarm the rhetoric because what they're saying isn't factually true but the rhetoric is powerful, as in it's psychologically manipulative. It, it, it really sort of shames people into changing their minds about things when they're really being tricked. So I want to share those things with you today. Um, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. I do this every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're in the middle of a series on penal substitutionary atonement. And in this series, we're dealing with, um, in fact, we've already dealt with um, the history behind penal substitutionary atonement, or basically, for those who don't know what that term means, I'm talking about how Jesus saves us, that Jesus died in my place as my representative on the cross. He suffered the, the penalty or the punishment for my sins so that I could be forgiven and God's wrath was dealt with and my re- relationship with God was restored. And that that's part of the cross. Like the cross is more than that, but the cross includes that. That's that's the idea here. Um, <clears throat> so... We dealt with the biblical side. We dealt with the historical side, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, today, we're going to deal with the rhetoric coming from those who are against penal substitution, which I think is very powerful rhetoric. And then we're going to deal next time with moral challenges and philosophical challenges to the view. So welcome. All right, here we go. Um, let's just jump right in. Here's the clips. This is mockery and misrepresentation. This is those who are effectively uh, distorting the doctrine of, of what we're saying for those who affirm penal substitution, that Jesus suffered the penalty for our sins dying in our place. Um, when we say this, um, they're twisting it back to us. They're giving us a straw man, a false representation. So here's the first clip. Let's just jump straight into it. This is um, about the, quote, myth of redemptive violence. This is Greg Boyd. He's one of the guys who really rails against penal substitution. The problem is that he rarely represents it accurately. Here we go. One major problem is that it puts the myth of redemptive violence on center stage in the atonement theory. Here at this crucial moment, God's solving the problems of uh, the separation of humanity uh, from him and the fragmentation of all creation. And how does he solve the problem? He kills somebody. It, It propagates the myth that violence is the solution to our problems. Okay, so, you know, both barrels blowing away right there, attacking the idea that Jesus' death on the cross was, you know, suffering a penalty, which would include some kind of violence in it. And so his, his accusation here is that we're saying violence redeems us. But, I mean, think about this, you guys. Those of you who've, who've heard penal substitution talked about either by theologians who are like careful with their words or perhaps casually people just talking about what it means that Jesus died for me. Do any of them say that violence is what redeems us? Like this seems silly to me. Violence is what redeems us? No. And what we're going to see over and over again with these misrepresentations of penal substitution is they pull out important elements. Think of it like a building. Um, like if I'm building a structure and I have like say walls and, and things that are supporting the walls, that sort of thing. Um, and then what I do is I, I, I decide to show and test how strong the structure is. But I'm going to test how strong the structure is after tearing out a bunch of the supports that make it strong in the first place. Well, of course, it's easy to smash that thing. Well, it's easy to smash penal substitution 
if you're going to pull out the supports of what it actually is being held together by. And so it's being held together not by violence, but by God's justice, by the idea of redemption, the idea that mercy and justice meet together at the cross, that love and righteousness meet together at the cross, that forgiveness and wrath meet together at the cross. And God's um, holy and merciful at the same time on the cross. This is the idea. It's not that violence redeems as though if humans committed enough violence, we'd be saved. This is a disgusting caricature of penal substitution. It's perverse. It's so bad. It's it's perverse. And um, I think that Greg Boyd should be ashamed uh, for saying this kind of stuff. And a lot of the people I'm going to share today, I'm I, I love them. I care about them. Um, and that's part of the reason why I would include their content here. I think they need to stop misrepresenting the, the teachings on this topic and realize, yeah, there's people who, who, you know, carelessly, callously misrepresent the cross. They use analogies that are no good to try to communicate what Jesus did. But we're talking about the doctrine, not analogies about it, the actual doctrine itself. So the cross is not a blanket pass on violence in general. It's an affirmation of God's justice. That's what it is. Um, you could say God would never use violence. I think that's what Greg Boyd would actually say is God would never, or he would imply it. I'll put it this way. His hearers would think he's saying it, <laughs> that God would never use violence. But God used violence in the Old Testament, in the flood, in the rebellion of Korah, in Sodom and Gomorrah, in the sacrificial system itself. He didn't use violence for the sake of violence, but he used it in the pursuit of justice, just as a courtroom does, just as police officers do, just as we, we see happening all around us in the world, very often in wrong ways, but God does it perfectly. Even in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira did. In the book of Revelation, you know, God used violence on them. In, in the book of Revelation, there's, there's a great deal of justice coming in the form of something that includes violence. So violence is not antithetical to the nature of God. But Greg Boyd tends to think it is. He's kind of a pacifist and he dismisses all the Old Testament passages or any scripture that supports any kind of use of violence as just not being of God. And that's a whole other video. One day I'll deal with his cruciform hermeneutic stuff. But let's move on. Let's look at the next um, mischaracterization of our view. But, you know, the pagans have always had this inc this intuition, I think a demonic intuition, that to appease the God, we must kill somebody. We must sacrifice our children to appease the gods so the rest of us don't um, uh, get punished. Well, if the penal substitution view is right, then that pagan intuition was basically right. The means by which they went about doing it were wrong, but but the intuition itself was was very godly. I think it was demonic. So the only the pagans just were killed the wrong people. That's all. He, that's all. It was wrong. Um, <clears throat> this is something I've heard from uh, from from uh, atheists. And what's interesting is how how many of the things that are being said by the people I'll share with you today, Boyd, uh, Boyd, Boyd, Zahn. <laughs> I combined Greg Boyd and Brian Zahn to someone named Boyd um, and uh, Steve Chalk. These guys, um, Kay Fairchild. I'm going to share quotes from all these people and they will frequently say things that you hear in the mouth of skeptics and atheists. But th the thing is, I don't need to defend that the cross is a pagan thing. I just need to point out that it's not. That's the point. Um, let me play another clip though. First, before I show you the difference, several differences between pagan sacrifices and, and the work of Christ on the cross, let me play another clip where Steve Chalk reinforces this with his uh, his saying kind of the same sort of stuff as, as um, Greg Boyd. They all kind of quote each other on these issues. Is it God who needs a bloody human sacrifice on a cross in order to forgive others any different from a God who requires that virgins have to be sacrificed on the slopes of an angry volcano that's threatening to erupt? 
and I'll add one more person to this. Take this all in. Here's here's Brian Zond. Uh, here's what he says, and I'll quote him for you. He says, particularly abhorrent are those theories that portray the father of Jesus as a pagan deity who can only be placated by the barbarism of child sacrifice. They want to use the word child in there because it's emotional, even though Jesus is not a child. Um, but they want to twist your heart with emotions to get you to reject biblical teaching. Um, the next sentence in, in this quote from Brian Zahn, he says, The God who's mollified by throwing a virgin into a volcano or by nailing his son to a tree is not the Abba of Jesus. So the important thing to them is there's no difference between uh, pagan sacrifices and the work of Christ on the cross. Zero difference. That's the mischaracterization. That's the lie about the doctrine of penal substitution. And if these guys cared about representing it properly, they would never say such things. But man, I'll tell you what, their theology is really bad, but their rhetoric is really good. And we already dealt with the theology. I dealt with three, three studies, three videos dealing with the biblical teaching on penal substitution, right? Supporting Old Testament, New Testament, out of the mouth of Jesus, out of the clear teachings of, of the whole of the Bible. Um, but now we get down to the nitty gritty because it's more about the rhetoric than anything else. So here's the differences between what Jesus did and four differences, what Jesus did versus pagan deities. It's embarrassing that I have to say this out loud, <laughs> but um, Jesus, when he went to the cross, it was, he was a true representative of mankind, not just a replacement. There's a big difference, right? It's not just grabbing someone, throwing him in front of the bullet, tossing him into the volcano. He was a true representative of mankind corporately. He goes to the cross to represent all of us. Genuine representation that's going on there. I'll get into more of the philosophy of how that works next time. But that's the teaching. The teaching is he's a representative, not just a, a victim. Um, the, uh, the second thing is that it was justice, not petty malice. The virgin thrown to a volcano is just the God just likes blood. He just wants things to die. That's the idea. He just enjoys things dying. Whereas with God, it's always justice. It's always perfect, holy justice. It, there's a requirement in God of justice that he places upon the world. And Jesus meets and fills that requirement. So it's not petty malice. A third difference is imputation of sin. Um, so he's not just a victim. Because justice is related to this, there's the imputation of our sins unto Christ so that he can be found guilty you know, declared guilty for the things that we have done, even though he's totally innocent. That's a vicarious atonement. And I'll get into that again, the, the legal framework of how that happens. I'll answer those questions next week. But this is a big difference. Fourth, it's the self-giving nature of Christ. He is not an unwilling victim like the virgin and thrown to the volcano. He's not this unwilling victim. It's a self-giving thing. He's giving himself. And I'll add another fifth, fifth one. I should have put this on my list, but I didn't. The idea that Jesus goes is God himself going and providing the sacrifice. God is the one making the sacrifice for us. We're not offering him anything of our own. He's offering for us. It's complete and total provision from the Lord from the top down. And so these are big differences. The only thing that connects the two is that there's a concept of sacrifice. But the purpose of the sacrifice, the way that it works, the, 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 the reason for it being offered, the kind of sacrifice, the thing that's being offered, everything's completely different. So this is just a total straw man. Why do they want to connect the pagan stuff with God? Because they want you to reject the biblical teaching because they want to shame you out of good theology. This is the power of rhetoric. Let's hear some more of it. Here we go. Does God really need to vent his wrath against somebody? 
against his own son in order to forgive us. Teaching that in order for God to get rid of his wrath, he had to pour it out on Jesus and vent it. Venting his anger. Father vented his wrath. Vent his wrath. Wrathful, so angry. It's almost like a, a rageaholic. I gotta vent my wrath on somebody. Uh, I don't care who it is, but somebody's gonna pay. Somebody's gonna pay. What's wrong with that picture? I'll tell you what's wrong with that picture. <laughs> yeah, I put that together. Um, that's the venting the wrath compilation clip. Um, it's interesting that the phrase that is constantly used by the guys that are against penal substitution to describe what happens in the exchange of punishment and all this stuff that Jesus goes through is venting. They always use the word venting wrath. God is venting his wrath. They always make it petty. They always make it weak. They always make it malicious and just like he's just an he's just angry and irritated like he's just a toddler so full of rage that he just starts hitting things and he's just i'm gonna destroy something is that the actual doctrine of penal substitution not by a long shot not even remotely that's not the teaching itself what well, why do they want to present it that way because it's rhetorically powerful you as a christian feel ashamed that you were believing that god would vent his wrath now, the word vent implies lack of self-control. It implies that there's no holiness related to this. It implies pettiness on behalf of God. And it takes the concept of justice completely out of the cross. The whole point of penal substitution is that the concept of justice is in the cross. That's a big deal. Um, yeah. Let me give you another petty quote. Uh, I say petty quote. I mean, a quote from someone. This is, uh, I think this is Dr. K. Fairchild. Her quote is to say, um, hey, you know, the the version of of uh, understanding the atonement that includes penal substitution it is disgusting because it makes god into this evil evil being so let me uh, play this clip for you let me find it and there it is penal substitutionary atonement my point is this to show you that the churches have the gravely mistaken idea that God was this angry, violent God who was bloodthirsty. Dr. K. Fairchild, her, her point is to make God look petty, make him look disgusting if you believe in penal substitution. And that's why she's going to put up this straw man, this false image of God in her, in her quote, where penal substitution makes God angry, violent, and bloodthirsty. But you don't get this from theologians. You don't get this from people who are affirming penal penal substitution. It's not that God's angry, violent, and bloodthirsty. That's not that. That's just His nature. Now, there's there's a truth in that God has anger towards sin. That's reality, and God and that anger is even directed towards individuals. But He's slow to wrath. He's long suffering. He's quick to forgive. But we don't remove the fact that there is some wrath there, and that's very important. Um, but they're just going to assume if there's any level of wrath, then God is just wicked. That's disgusting. It's actually blasphemous. And I don't want you to fall for it. Uh, I don't want you to get sucked into this. They always strip out these certain elements of penal substitution or of the cross, right? They strip out the elements of justice and it being a rightful sentence that mankind is under condemnation because of their sin. And they strip out representation uh, as well. But this is exactly what, you know, penal substitution is actually teaching. So they strip it of its, of its very core meanings and then they mock it and ridicule it. Let's hear some more. This is another misrepresentation. This is Brooksy Cavey. Um, he's talking about um, what penal substitution is trying to figure out when it deals with the topic of God's wrath. And I, I mean, I've been studying this topic a lot over the past few months. And this is just a total misrepresentation. This is just not it. In my last video, I dealt with God's wrath. And you'll see how I answer, if you want to go back and watch it, it the playlist is in the video description. You can see how I answer the question of, 
Um, why do I think that wrath is related to what Jesus did on the cross? I build it through biblical passages and teachings. But look at what KV does. He just totally um, misrepresents it. Now is the theory of, so when you get saved and you're no longer under his judgment and his wrath goes away, where did it go? And there's a theory. God had to put it somewhere because he had all this wrath stored up for you and it can't just go away. So he poured it out on Jesus to get rid of it all. Now it can come to you wrath free. I mean, can you smell how bad that is? This is not the doctrine of penal substitution. But here he's standing at, a, I think he's at a seminary. He's like teaching in front of a, some sort of group of students. And he's like, here's the doctrine of penal substitution. It's like, it's like Humpty Dumpty came up with it, right? It, it's like Mickey and his pals came up with the doctrine of penal substitution. It, God has wrath. He doesn't know what to do with it. Where is he going to put it? This is embarrassingly bad. This is not the doctrine itself. Um, it implies that God has emotional problems, not not penal substitution dealing with justice and holiness and the right and just punishment of sin, what Romans calls the demonstration of God's righteousness on the cross. None of that, no. There's no justice involved at all, right? Even though God says he will not acquit the guilty, right? You know, Brooksy here, Brooksy Cavey, he, he's going to, and he's a super nice guy. In fact, most of the people in these videos I'm talking about are actually very nice people. I just don't think it matters that you're nice. I think your theology needs to be accurate when you talk about God. Like, it's good that you're nice. That's cute. But your theology needs to be right, you know? And um, anyway, he's going to present, you know, it like this. God's just got this emotional problem where he's got wrath. He's got to dump it somewhere. Or he's got this sort of like mathematical equation he has to balance out. But it's not that. It's justice. God himself says, I will not acquit the guilty. We went over those passages the past two times in this series, that he's just not going to do it. So it's based on God's holiness and being judge of the earth, not God having a pocket full of wrath and not knowing what to do with it. Um, it's just silly. All right, let's look at another one. Uh, this is Greg Boyd, where he gives a straw man and he talks about penal substitution, ignoring the concepts of um, representation, penalty, or even the, the very concept of the Trinity. All those things are ignored in his rendition of the doctrine. And he's going to send humanity to eternal hell. But Jesus steps in and says, no, dad, take me instead. So the father pours out his wrath on the son. And, and uh, then he's satisfied. And now he says, okay, now I can accept uh, these sinful human beings. So um, if you were to actually add penalty, you wouldn't be able to characterize this as God just petty wrath. I just, I'm so mad. I'm so mad. I'm going to kill somebody. No, because you add the concept that there's a just penalty for sin that needs to be dealt with. That goes away. If you add representation, then you realize that Jesus isn't just jumping in front of a wrathful father. You would, you would instead realize that Jesus comes as us, as us on the cross. He goes in my place, just like as Adam represents me in the garden. So Christ represents me on the cross in the, uh, and, and at Golgotha. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing. It's a loving thing. It's, it satisfies justice and accomplishes mercy at the same time, but you never get any of this. He's rightfully standing in my place. He's not just jumping in front of a bullet. Um, and if you also add the Trinity to what, what Greg Boyd just said, then you realize that he can't create this division between the father and the son. This is built on a destruction of the Trinity. His concept, he's going to say penal substitution breaks the Trinity. The reality is his mischaracterization of penal substitution is what breaks the Trinity because he has the father ag acting against the son. Yet the scripture tells us that it was the father who sent the son, 
right? So let me give you another example here. And, and we're going to go to um, a passage in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians. I'm just going to read it to you. I'm not going to put it on screen today. But this passage reveals to us that not only the father had wrath towards sin, but the son has wrath towards sin as well. And this is a big deal like that. That in understanding what Jesus did on the cross, we have to understand that the wrath towards sin is not just the father's. It is also the son's, right? It's not like the father has one attitude. Jesus has a different attitude. They're, they've shared attitudes across the board here. So one side, let's deal with the wrath. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, it says, Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God thinks it's just. It's, that's justice to do that. It's not just pure angry violence. It's justice. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus is the one who's coming, inflicting vengeance according to Second Thessalonians. Let me read on. This is verse uh, nine of Second Second Thessalonians chapter one. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes, Jesus comes, on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. This is kind of a big deal. Do you know, like you might be like, well, how does Greg Boyd handle this? Well, I dealt with this in a previous video, but I'll just mention it here. Here's what Greg Boyd says about the Second Thessalonians passage because he doesn't want Jesus to be able to have wrath. So he says, that in writing to the Thessalonians, Paul, quote, this is a quote from Greg Boyd, Paul seems to be satisfying the Thessalonians and or his own fallen thirst for vengeance to come upon their enemies and nothing about his socio-religious context seems to alter this impression. That's um, on page 589 of his uh, two-volume series, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. That's Greg Boyd. His comments, see, his, he has to tear scripture to, in, into pieces to sustain the view that God doesn't have wrath or even that Jesus doesn't have wrath towards sin. So the wrath is shared between the father and the son, but the wrath, the love is also shared between the father and the son. You know, he acts as though the love is in the position of Jesus. The, the wrath is in the position of the father, but really the doctrine is going to hold that all of those qualities are across the board, father, son, Holy spirit. So we have God, the father sending his son to save us from the consequences of our sin, the just consequences, but yet expressing his righteousness uh, demonstrated on the cross through Christ's suffering because he chose to do it and they both chose it. It's it's not a one-sided thing. Anyway, it's just weird because how do you in conversation unpack this if someone just throws it at you? Well, your doctrine tears the Trinity apart and puts the Father against the Son. And you're just like, well, no, it doesn't. But, like, but how do I get you to know that in a casual conversation? This kind of rhetorical straw man stuff just kills intelligent discussion about theology. Let's look at another one. Um, and we're going to look at a, a couple of them now, I think, that um, put the father against the son. Um, so I've introduced to you now the idea that that they will ignore the Trinity in the concept of penal substitution, right? They act like like the son isn't God the son. Instead, he's just like this poor, innocent child who's just being brutalized or something. Um, well, let's look at another example of splitting the Trinity here, um, putting the father against the son. The Bible says that Jesus reveals God's love. It doesn't say that he, can, he, he appeases his wrath. Uh, it, this almost puts a dichotomy between the Father and the Son, which is why uh, wherever this view has been held as the dominant view, uh, there's been a tendency of people to, they love Jesus, thank God for Jesus, but, but the Father, not too sure about There's something wrong with the picture that, 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 that makes you fear one member of the Godhead, as though uh, he would just assume um, 
sent us to eternal hell. Um, but thankfully, Jesus, Jesus ends up saving us from the Father. Like I just want to throw up when I hear this representation of of a doctrine that is beautiful and wonderful and good, uh, presenting it as so horribly, so distorted. The and, and this is not stuff that's new. You would think that that like the guys during the Reformation writing on the doctrine of penal substitution um, were just such numbskulls. They they just couldn't even think through these things. Like they're as if they're writing. And then God the Father hates us totally. But Jesus, nah, he loves us. So it's all right. And he's gonna come and he's gonna die. And like this is just not the doctrine. Um yeah. So let's talk about the um the first false dichotomy. We'll do with a few false dichotomies later, but first false dichotomy, which is this that um either, according to Boyd in, in the quote I just shared with you, the video, either Jesus is appeasing God's wrath or he's revealing God's love. And I would say if you have a right understanding of appeasing wrath, which they don't, so I would use different terms. I would say he satisfies um, the requirements of, of divine justice. Uh, I might put it that way. But he's also showing God's love. He's doing both, right? He's showing God's love in taking the punishment for my sin. So both are true. This isn't a real dichotomy. Um, so first, you need to see God's wrath as righteous and good instead of petty. And Boyd never does. And these guys never seem to do that. They seem to reject those teachings entirely. Um, they say that God, in fact, Boyd says that when God seems to be showing wrath and, and judging people in the Old Testament, he's really taking on an ugly appearance that's not really who he is. And the Old Testament, therefore, is kind of tricking us into thinking God's bad. And it's kind of like a big puzzle you're supposed to figure out. Um, that's his, it's embarrassing. That's his teaching on this stuff. And the uh, second issue I'll say is um, Romans 5.9. What does Romans 5.9 tell us about these things? It says, Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That Jesus is saving us from God's wrath. This is like a reality on the cross. God's wrath is stored up against you. This is Romans. This was the last series, study I did in the series. We went through Romans. God's wrath is being stored up. And there's this future day, what they'll call, the scholars will call an eschatological wrath that's coming our way when we in the future stand before God on judgment day. But Christ, he does save us from God's wrath. His blood sacrifice, the sacrifice of his very life, saves us from God's wrath and reveals God's love. Both are true. So God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. So he's trying to pit the father against the son, uh, but PSA never pits, that's penal substitution, never pits the father against the son. That's the caricature of Greg Boyd. That's the caricature of Brian Zahn. It's the character of Steve Chalk. That's the caricature of you name it. Just name guy after guy. Um, th no, the doctrine of PSA is totally Trinitarian. The whole thing's Trinitarian all the way through. Um, so it strips the father of his love, this mischaracterization, and it strips the son of his wrath and proper judgment. And I could give you more scriptures that support the idea in fact, John 5, read John 5. Jesus is like, judgment's mine and I'm going to judge and I'm even going to condemn, bring people to condemnation if you read John 5 verses 28 through 30. Um, yeah, so Jesus isn't saving us from the Father. It's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit saving us from the just wrath that we deserve because of our sins. Let's do another one on them splitting the Trinity up. Here's another... Um, where they break the Trinity and accuse us of breaking the Trinity. If we say that the crucifixion is what God is doing to Jesus, we do violence to the Trinity. We tear the Trinity apart. We pit the Father against the Son. 
violence to the Trinity. Now, if you hear this, I mean, you're probably strongly committed to the doctrine of the Trinity, or you should be. Um, and I have a video on that. Check it out. Go Google it. But um, but what what you what you hear is you're like, why? Oh, I, I, I I'm, this is against the Trinity itself. And so you're trying. You're getting like sort of theological reason to trump your view that penal substitution is happening. But this is just projection. This is projecting. It's not us that are dividing the Trinity. Um, it's not the doctrine itself that divides the Trinity. It is it is Brian Zond who's trying to divide the Trinity and then use that as a case against this doctrine. It just doesn't work. No. Um, now, there are some, and I've got to admit here, there are bad analogies that people use to try to teach what Jesus did on the cross. And they'll talk, one of the ones maybe that we need to not use, well... I have mixed feelings about these analogies, but uh, one of them is like, say the idea that, you know, that there's a, a, a train operator and there's a train coming and the train operator's son falls into the tracks. And he, if he throws the switch, then the train will kill his son. But if he doesn't, all the people will die. And so he throws the switch and his son dies. Okay, well, there's an element there that does communicate the kind of sacrifice that that God gave for us in giving his son. But it's not the doctrine of penal substitution in that analogy. In fact, it goes against it because there's no justice in there. There's no genuine representation in there. So this isn't actually the doctrine. This analogy falls way short. And it becomes used by people, you know, to fight against the doctrine. Really, they're fighting bad analogies. They're not fighting the doctrine itself. But speaking of bad analogies, let me give you a couple bad analogies that come from the other side. These are analogies supposedly representing penal substitution that totally butcher it. You know, it's like the father beats up big brother so Junior can be off the hook. Well, that's not at all the way that it works. It's not how it works. Like it's, like it, the thing is though, father's not beating up big brother so Junior can get off the hook. Is there representation there? No. Is there substitution there? Like um, some kind of weird butchered substitution, but not real full representation. Is there uh, justice? Is there the self-giving nature? Is it God himself offering? No, none of those things are there. This is this messes up the doctrine. So yeah, that's not how it works. But but this is um this is to say she doesn't understand how it works and she's arguing against it and that doesn't make any sense. Let's look at um, another example, another bad analogy. If I am, say, your father, you're my son, you have done something wrong. And I say, I am wrathful with you, I'm going to punish you. And you say, I am sorry, I'm, I apologize, please forgive me. I say, okay, you're forgiven. I have no need to now say, first I must kill the cat. <laughs> <clears throat> like, that's not the doctrine. It's like, do, does anybody really think? Well, I mean, obviously some people do that the doctrine of saying that Jesus died as my substitute in my place to pay the penalty for my sin that I deserved. When, when I say this, they think, oh, so it's like God was like, I just got to kill something. I just got to kill something. Like, come on, guys. This is this is the kind of scoffing that Proverbs warns against. This is the kind of mockery that leads us into personal darkness where we can't even see the truth anymore because we're so good at mischaracterizing it in ways that make us feel good about our own views. And um. Anyways, I have something I want to show you guys because one of the problems with this view is that um, the, the the analogy that you just heard is that it characterizes the cross. And I see this over and over again. So I want to put up a little chart I have somewhere here. Um, here we go. This chart um, is going to demonstrate the, the fact that um, 
these guys that we're hearing, Boyd, Zahn, you know, K. Fairchild, they, they tend to think of God as in his role as offended party. And that's it. Like he's an offended person. And then so forgiveness is just, you just let it go. You just forgive. You're offended. You go, I forgive you. That's the end of the story. That's the analogy he gave. But the Bible presents more dimensions to the forgiveness that we need than just that. God has other roles. So God in the center column here, he's our creditor. This is the analogies of scripture. Um, he's, he's the offended party and he's also the judge. And so on man's side, I have debt with God. And so he's the creditor in that sense. And Jesus is the surety. He's the one who accomplishes the payment uh, of that debt. Okay, well, that's in a biblical concept. Maybe the concept of ransom is there as well. Um, on the on the second column, the second row, you, you see down there, man is has it enmity with God. My sin is, is, is a personal offense against God. So that makes God the offended party. And then Christ is the mediator between God and man, restoring the relationship between us. Okay, but they act like that's the whole story. But no, there's more. Man has committed crimes. This is the nature of holiness and justice that must be included in our concept of the cross. Man has committed a sin crime against God and God is the judge of the universe. This is throughout the scripture. He's the moral judge and he will bring justice even if it's, uh, you know, during a second resurrection just to bring judgment to people who never had that justice. He's the judge and Christ, he is the priest and victim who suffers the penalty for those things that we deserve. So um, in Christ, we have Christ being our surety mediator and priest and victim. So it deals with God being creditor, offended party and judge. But in the characterizations you've been seeing, they ignore most of those. And they generally only talk about God as an offended personal party, not as the judge of the universe. Well, scripture gives us more to it than that. And we should acknowledge those things. So God's not killing a cat, right? God's not killing a cat. Now, let me let me give you a quote from uh, Francis Turretin. He was a, one of the reformers who wrote extensively on the topic of uh, penal substitution and defending the doctrine against uh, Sicinius, I think, was the guy who was a heretic, actually, and who is often quoted by these guys nowadays. Um, anyway, Turretin said the following about this idea. He said, God has the claims, not only of a creditor or lord, which he can assert and remit at, a, at pleasure, right? Creditor or Lord. He can assert, assert or remit those things as, at pleasure, but also the right of government and of punishment, which is natural and indispensable. God can relax his right, but not absolutely. He can do it only in so far as justice will allow, to wit, he cannot act unjustly. Scripture puts it this way in Romans 3.26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or Galatians 3, which we went over last time, that talks about Jesus becoming a curse for us. That curse was related to the law, the consequence of sin, curse equals death. Jesus dies because he became a curse for us so that that law was accomplished so that I could be freed through justice. Beautiful, but not to these guys. Let's look at another one. I hope to make you immune to such terrible misrepresentations today. That's my goal. Um, let's look at another one. So that when we say Christ died for our sins, do we mean that God required the murder of his son in order to forgive? No, that maligns the character of God. That did malign the character of God, actually, uh, but not in the way he was thinking. Um, it strips out the meaning of the cross, right? And the meaning of penal substitution. Uh, we're, not, we're not saying God required a murder. That's not the doctrine. Now, there's you could say, well, there's elements in the doctrine that could lend people to say something like that. Yeah, but that is being stated as the whole story. 
And so it strips out justice. It strips out representation, imputation, demonstration of righteousness. And all those things really matter. Now, you could say that Christ's death involved a murder and God wanted it to involve, you know, him being unjustly treated by a court system. I think that that was part of God's intention. He intended for it to look that way um, while he was giving the just consequences for our sin. But the purpose for this would be to demonstrate that Jesus was innocent and the nature of him dying was as the innocent one who without offense dies for other people's offenses. That's the idea. These are legal categories God's securing in the very story of the cross so that you and me can understand it better so we can appreciate the incredible love that Christ has shown us. Let's look at another one. I call this clip scoffing in malice. <laughs> How does this work? Does God say, well, look, I want to forgive sins, but I'm going to get paid. And I want an innocent life. That's a given. And uh, let's see, I want his death to be painful. Uh, crucifixion, that'll do. Uh, but I want some torture beforehand. I want there to be some lashes. Uh, you know, a crown of thorns, that would be nice. I want a crown of thorns. And we might say, how many thorns will be enough to pay the price? Ten? Oh, no, there must be a minimum of 19 thorns in the crown. Oh, man. Brian Zahn, I don't think you'll ever watch this. If you do, though, please, man, please stop. Like, your your rhetoric is is blasphemous. And, um, and I know I did a video, I dealt with Brian Zahn's content before and he just laughed, he just laughed at it. And, and I get that, um, cause that's, you're so self-assured, but, but I'm saying, if you'll hear us out, maybe you'll realize that you've, you've not just gone off the reservation. You're, you're setting fires on the reservation. Um, anyways, um, is this, is this reality, right? God, um, he just wants to, um, he's just malicious. In Brian Zahn's, you know, retelling of penal substitution, because this isn't a debate where he's debating against penal substitution in particular. And he's in his retelling of it. He's like, yeah, God's like, how many thorns do I really want to see? Let's see how many. And it's like it's like a horror movie playing out. And the, the director is like, how many body parts and how much blood do we want to see here? And that's just a disgusting misrepresentation of, of the actual doctrine of the cross that he's actually fighting against. And it's embarrassing. This ignores Jesus as a representative of humanity. It ignores justice. It ignores blah, blah. You know, you, you, you're kind of picking up on the repeated pattern at this point. Now, he does focus, interestingly, on the number of thorns that are on the cross, that are on Jesus on the cross, as though if there was one less thorn, it wouldn't have worked. I think that sounds dumb, and I think that you think it does too. But I will say this, that the thorns themselves do seem to have symbolic meaning. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree, the part of the curse is that the ground will bring forth thorns. Jesus, he becomes a curse for us on the tree. And there's another connection with the Old Testament. Um, whoever hangs on a tree is cursed. That, and that's connected to in the New Testament. They're like, yeah, he became a curse for us. And so he's taking the curse of sin, which ha happens to include thorns, which are part of the curse brought on Adam and Eve. I think this is a beautiful demonstration of how Jesus takes upon all us, all of the consequences of our wickedness and sin, all of them, including the cursing of the ground, because he's going to redeem all of creation, including the ground. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Now, he scoffed at it and mocked and laughed at it, but I think it's a beautiful thing. And um, this is this scoffing, this is psychological manipulation that's meant to embarrass you out of good theology. That's the bottom line. I usually hear from atheists, but I also hear it from these guys who I would call progressive Christians, I don't eat the word Christian sometimes. I wonder if I should even be using that in the same sentence, but uh, I'm just being straight with you guys. Here's another one. This is um, more psychological manipulation. 
really what we're dealing with in this debate, in this discussion, is what is God like? What is the Father, the Abba of Jesus, like? It's an enormously important question. Is God retributive? Is he vindictive? Is he vengeful? Is he malicious? Is he malevolent? Dare we say it, is he monstrous? Is that what we're saying? I'm like, here's the doctrine of penal substitution, right? I just want you to know God's vindictive, malicious. He's, he's monstrous. He's just super evil. That's penal substitution. Will you accept it, my friend? Like, is, is anybody doing this? No, this is, a, this is manipulation. This is, the, but the thing is, this totally gets people because people are, are led more often by the way things sound more more perhaps than the reality of what's being said or the truthfulness of what's being said and man i mean how would you feel if your pastor came to you and was like do you think god's malicious and make ding 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 and you'd be like i don't know of course i don't think that pastor tell me what to believe i'm sorry i apologize but this is this is the thing uh brian's on content often just in my opinion shames people out of good theology that's the idea yeah and I say, beware anyone who says, if this doctrine's true, then God is evil. I think this is a terribly unwise thing. I think the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One, right? That's where understanding starts. And when you realize God's holy, first thing you need to know is he's holy. And then, then you, you can see that whatever the scripture is going to teach you about God, it's just so foolish to be like, well, you know, me, I'm, I'm such and such age and I think I have a good grip on, uh, on moral things and I think God's immoral there. And so I reject that. I think that that's ultimately um, pride, prideful, prideful and dangerous. And so we, we need to recognize God is God. And when he says, I exacted justice at the cross, we need to say, yes, you did. Because you're God telling me you did. I, what am I going to do? Tell you that I think you're wrong because my version of justice doesn't, doesn't fit that? Well, I just think you're wrong about justice if you don't think that. Um, all right, I... Don't have too many more, but there's there's going to be some more. This one is um, about whether Jesus preached the gospel or not. Let me make sure. There it is. Here we go. Did Jesus ever preach the gospel? Of course he did. And never more so than in his greatest parable, the parable of the prodigal son. But penal substitutionary atonement necessitates the insertion of a fictive and ugly episode into the prodigal son parable so that it would go something like this. And when the father saw his lost son returning from the far country, he ran to the servants' quarters where he beat the hell out of an innocent whipping boy, thus satisfying his wrath, and once having satisfied his wrath, then he could go and embrace his son and offer forgiveness. I say, no, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel given to us in Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's not the gospel, but it's also not what penal substitution teaches. It's just another misrepresentation. But let's start with the question, because I want you to understand, a lot of people will miss it, but there's this subtle twisting that's going on here. And I've heard it from other sources as well. I heard guys on the... Um, uh, deconstructionist podcast talk about the same issue and they said it the same way as Brian does here and I don't recommend that stuff I think it's totally heretical um, but, <clears throat> but on their podcast and here Brian Zahn says he's like did Jesus ever preach the gospel 
Now, what this does is this sort of removes the rest of scripture from your arsenal of how you'll understand what Jesus did on the cross. Forget the Old Testament, forget the apostles, forget what Paul wrote in Romans or some Galatians passage. Let's just strictly talk about Jesus because now I've sort of unhanded you on from probably the most clear passages about the meaning of the cross. And then having done that, he'll replace your understanding of the cross with one parable, the prodigal son. The prodigal son, there was no offering made and therefore there is no offering made. End of story. But there's a few problems with this. One is that the story of the prodigal son isn't about the entire theology of the cross. It's a communication about God's receptive attitude towards those who turn to him and repent. It's not about the whole theology of what happens on the cross. It's just not about it at all. So he's using it to establish a theology that it's not talking about. It doesn't have any statements that he's, that he's drawing from positively to make his claims or anything. Uh, the story isn't about the whole gospel and all of its aspects. Parables generally focus on certain things, certain specific things. That's what they focus on. And we need to let them be what they are and not try to make them something they're not. But to the question, did Jesus preach the gospel? I would, of course, say, yes, he did. He did, right? And he, for instance, taught in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. he connected his death on the cross to understanding it with Isaiah chapter 53. He quotes Isaiah 53 about himself. And I went two videos ago all through Isaiah 53 just to say that it's got penal substitutionary atonement in the passage of Isaiah 53. Jesus quotes a passage about Isaiah about penal substitutionary atonement uh, as, as referencing what his death means. So Brian's on, yes, yes, Jesus preached the gospel and he taught penal substitutionary atonement you know, through the Old Testament. Um, Jesus affirmed that the whole Old Testament was about him. He said Moses wrote of him. He said he'd come to fulfill the law. At the Last Supper in Matthew 26, Jesus connects his sacrifice with the Passover lamb. Well, the second video in this series that I've done, we dealt with the Passover sacrifice and how penal substitution was part of the Passover sacrifice. So Jesus connects himself to two Old Testament passages there that preach this doctrine. In Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, Jesus says the following. This is after his resurrection. He says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What did Jesus say about himself? That the Old Testament is all about understanding what he was doing on the cross in, in addition to other things. And so, yeah, uh, Brian Don wants to disabuse you of, of interpreting Jesus through Leviticus. But Jesus wants to give you Leviticus and say, this, this explains what I'm doing on the cross. So, yeah, let's look at another quote. Um, here is, there's just a few more to show you today. Penal substitutionary atonement insists that God cannot just forgive. That's what they'll say. God can't just forgive. I say, what do you mean he can't? Of course he can. Of course he can. He can just forgive because God is not subordinate to justice. It's not as if God has to pay off. It's not as though God is saying, look, I'd love to forgive you all, but I got to pay off Lady Justice. She's a tough goddess. And she, does, and she, her only concept of justice is retributive justice. And so I'd like to forgive you all, but I've got to pay off justice first. It begs the question, who's in charge here? Is God underneath, subordinate to some concept of retributive justice? Not just the justice that sets the world right, but he must pay off justice. This is a central problem with penal substitutionary atonement theory. It reduces justice to retributive justice. 
Can you tell what's wrong with this? The question he asks is, is it right to say that God is subservient to some external concept of justice, some pagan God named justice? That's actually name of a pagan deity, by the way, um, who he has to pay off in order to get permission to forgive. That's the wrong question. This is the, this is a silly question. The question isn't that at all. The question is, does God internally, because of his own good nature, does he demand justice? It's not external to him. It's internal to him. Now, he pretends it's external to God in order to attack the doctrine. But it, if it's internal to God, as scripture proclaims that God is holy and righteous and he's the judge of all the earth and he will do right, well, then all of a sudden his whole complaint falls apart. So this is just, again, it's, it's not like a substantive objection to the doctrine. It's just... Um, twisting truth. Um, let me share one more with you. Um, this is called, I call this reframing, right? When you, when you restate, this is kind of a lot of what's been going on. When you restate to somebody what, you know, a doctrine or a thing, and you try to put it in a new context that it doesn't fit in, in order to make it look bad, this is what, he, this is what Steve Chalk is doing in this clip. I believe that the cross is not about God's anger, cruelty, violence, and longing for retribution. Um, I, I just played the short clip because it's he believes that the cross is not about God's angry, violent desire for retribution or something. The wording there was similar to that. Um, well, like, duh. Like, of course, nobody thinks this. I don't know anybody who thinks this. Like, this that's not a Christian doctrine. That's certainly not penal substitution. Um, no, what we're what we're saying isn't that it's all about God's anger and violence. We're saying, saying that it shows God's love and God's righteousness, God's mercy and God's justice, God's judgment and God's forgiveness, both in the cross. Um, yeah, I, I think what he would need to say if he wanted to reject penal substitution is, I don't believe the cross reveals that God is righteous and holy and the just judge of all. That would be a proper refutation of penal substitution. That God's, forgive my terrible accent. I just like accents for fun. I wish I was British. Um, short story, my, my wife had a list of, uh, of things that she wanted to see in her future husband. She had a big long list. And I checked like most of the boxes. She's a big giant dork, you know, who's dorky. So I checked all the boxes. Um, but one of the things that she wrote on her list, I didn't have, and that was a British accent. So, um, so yeah. Oh, well, oh, well, you can't be perfect. <laughs> all right. Now I'm gonna play another clip with you for you. And I want, I want to ask you, you figure it out. You figure out what's wrong with this clip. What's wrong? How is it misrepresenting things? What's missing in the in the presentation of penal substitution that they want to disagree with? If this is what Jesus' death on the cross was all about, then God, it turns out, is a slave to his own anger, unwilling or unable to forgive those who've wronged or misunderstood him without first getting his pound of flesh. And if the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son to appease his anger, it makes an absolute mockery of Jesus' teaching. There is a mockery. There is an absolute mockery of Jesus' teaching. And it's right there. But do you see it? There's no justice. There's no holiness. And there's no goodness in the wrath of God. In the presentation that you just heard, the Bible presents God's wrath as though it's proper, deserved, and it's actually good. But he loves us, so he wants to hold it back, give us a chance to be saved, let us make a decision about Christ, and then we get to choose God's grace or God's wrath. 
And um, none of that is is in there in, in the, the presentation you just heard. God's a slave to his anger. No, I mean, you could put it that way if you want, that, that this makes God a slave to his anger. But this is just a pejorative way to put it. How about I just say it this way? God's consistent in his character of holiness. He's consistent in his character of holiness. All of a sudden, what sounded like a horrible thing is actually a positive thing because it's just a, it's a word game that's being played. Um, these guys also tend to redefine things like wrath, holiness, justice, because you're like, how could they say these things? How could they just reject God's holiness? Well, they just redefine it. They define holiness as something that has nothing to do with the types of issues we're talking about. Uh, Brian Zahn likes to say that wrath is a biblical metaphor. It's a metaphor, apparently for something other than wrath. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but the biblical authors wouldn't have thought those things. Um, and you shouldn't either. Okay, I'm going to do real quick a few false dichotomies because I've covered all the objections I want to cover today. I'm going to go to your questions in just a minute. But here's three false dichotomies. Um, I'll show video clips of these. This is where they want to make you pick between either or, right? Either you, you believe this or you believe that. And it's a false dichotomy. And if you can notice this, then you won't be talked out of a good biblical doctrine. Jesus does not save us from God. Jesus reveals God to us. He doesn't save us from God. He reveals God to us. What's the false dichotomy there? Well, I mean, he does both. I mean, in a sense, he saves us from God. But when you say saves from God, the implication, the implication that's under the words there, it feels to me like the implication is God being angry and spiteful and hateful. But that's not what scripture says. He saves us from the just punishment of the sins that we actually deserve. That, In that sense, you could say he kind of saves you from God, but it's but that still doesn't work because Jesus is God saving us. So Jesus is God saving us from the just penalty of our wrath. We're not being saved so much from God, but from the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. Well, let me read scripture that says it again, Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Okay, so that's, that's, not a, that's a false dichotomy. We are saved from, from God's wrath. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says um, that we need to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a future wrath that's coming. We're delivered. Now they'll like to reinterpret it. Well, is you know, it's when you come to Jesus and you change your behavior so that you are no longer experiencing your own wrath. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, are we just going to let the Bible be the Bible or are you just going to keep playing games? Um, yeah. So it reveals God's love and God's wrath. John 3.16, God so loved the world. It's both, God's love and wrath. Here's the next false dichotomy. God did not require the crucifixion of Jesus, but we did. God didn't require the crucifixion of Jesus, but we did. Well, I mean, we both required it in different ways, you know? I require it in the sense that I need it. I need Christ to come and die for me because there's no other way. Um, if there's any other way, let this cut pass for me, Jesus said. So I need it in the sense of require, like I require it to exist, but I'm not demanding it. Like I want him to die. That's not, that's not the, that doesn't make sense. No. Um, but on the other hand, God required it in a sense to satisfy justice, to satisfy his just demands. So there's a sense in which it was required on both ends. Uh, yeah. Let's look at one more. So what do you think? Do you think that redemption comes through love or punishment? These are your choices, love or punishment. They're mutually exclusive. There couldn't be an element of punishment even in the cross while God shows his love. Well, obviously this is silly. So yeah, it's both, um, love and punishment. Um, there's other dichotomies I don't have video clips for. I often hear people say things like, God didn't kill Jesus, we did. I'm like, well, I mean, it was God's will to crush him. God 
put him, he made him an offering for sin. So this was God's design and plan and we killed him. So it's both. I mean, they're both true for different reasons and, and you can explore that and it's interesting stuff, but it, the dichotomy doesn't work. Another one is uh, it doesn't reveal the wrath of God. It reveals the love of God. The cross doesn't reveal the wrath of God, but the love of God. And I'm like, well, it reveals both. I mean, like, why can't it reveal both? Um, no reason. Um, it's not where God judges sin. It's where God forgives sin. Another one I've heard. It's not where God judges sin. It's where God forgives sin. I'm like, well, it's both. Like, it's both. And that's and that's what makes it so beautiful. That's also what makes it so shocking and what makes it such a stumbling block for some people. But I'm not going to remove the stumbling block of the cross because if people can mock it and ridicule it. They've been doing it for 2,000 years, mocking the cross. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Um, other things I hear people say before I go to your questions, people do the more about thing. They say more about. Let me give you an example. I think that the cross is more about restoring us than it is about judgment. I think the cross is more about love than it is about wrath. I think the cross is more about forgiveness than it is about punishment. To this, I just want to say, I don't care if you think it's more about. The question is, is it about all of those things or is it only about one of them, not the other? If it's about both, then our theology of the cross should include all of those elements. Love, wrath, justice, forgiveness, punishment, mercy. All those elements should be in our understanding of what Jesus did. Um, or people say the, the penal substitution is not the only model of the atonement, Mike. Why are you so obsessed with penal substitution? I would like, no, it's just the only model of, or the only description of the atonement. I won't even use the word model. It's the only description of the atonement that you're attacking right now. That's why I'm going to defend it, right? If you were, if you attacked the idea that Jesus was our moral example on the cross, I would defend that. If you attacked the idea that Jesus, um, was the victor, the Christus victor view, right? That Jesus is the victor over sin, Satan, the devil, um, the flesh, all those things, then I would defend that view. I'm going to defend the one you're denying, right? That's that's why I'm doing this series. Yeah, so it may not be the only view. Um, but for instance, like Brooksy Cavey, he taught on the topic and he said that there's truth in every one of these views of the atonement. You know, penal substitution, Christus victor, moral theory, governmental theory, all these things. Um, but he's, but when someone asked him, a student raised his hand and asked him in class, but, um, what's the truth? What's the true element in penal substitution? And he said, well, maybe not that one. And you get it. It's, it's really, there's, there's like a bullseye on penal substitution. That's the thing that's being attacked. Yet it's essential in our understanding of the cross. All we're saying is this, the concept of penalty and substitution as they're understood in the doctrine of PSA, they are an essential element of the cross. Other things are also there as well. And um, that's the bottom line. Uh, there you go. Be careful who you listen to, you guys, because they can shame you and guilt you out of good theology through sarcasm and misrepresentation. Uh, you may not be able to dismantle their stuff, but you can at least notice when it's happening. Am I being manipulated here? Am I being emotionally shamed out of, out of you know, what may be right theology on things? Um, yeah. Let me, uh, let me go to your guys' questions. And um, as I do that, I'll just mention, um, I don't, uh, I don't mention this too often, but I just want a reminder for some of you out there, this is not like a handout begging or something like that. But if you do love this ministry, I am supported through your guys' donations online. But I want to preface it with this. Um, you have other ministries that are on your heart, give to them. Or you're having financial hardship, do not give to me. I'm not asking for that. I don't want that. But rather, there's going to be just, I just need a few people and we have it. The Lord's, the Lord's taking care of it. We just need a certain number of people to say, yeah, I think I want to support that ministry, what Mike's doing. And you can, there's a, should be a link in the description to um, a place where you could donate on the website for that. But uh, the, the whole goal is to keep all the content free. 
I hate talking about the money stuff. <laughs> it makes me feel uncomfortable. But I want to keep going and keep doing this ministry and your guys' support. And thank you for the supporters. You're making it happen. And if it wasn't for you, I literally wouldn't be doing this today. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be able to because I'd be out looking for a job. <laughs> um, yeah. And I just spent all my time studying and getting quotes from, from uh, bad people in order to refute them. Um, and you make it possible. So thank you very much. All right. Kathy Michael says... Um, Question from Kathy. If your pastor's total focus is on... Oh, that was from last week. I remember that question. Here we go. Aaron Lument says, uh, Hi, question, Mike. Do you do Jehovah's Witnesses affirm penal substitution? My little interaction with the theology seems to affirm that they do. Well, that's a good question. I, I would need at least a few minutes to think about it. I haven't even been thinking about JW theology in a while. Um, they... I don't know. I guess I, I, I just have to say I don't know the answer to that question. Interesting question, Aaron. Sorry, I can't help you with it right now. I'd have to like look into it probably. Um, I'm trying to think of what they do affirm about the cross. Jesus died on a torture stake. They don't think it was a cross. Um, they don't think he resurrected in a physical body. Um, they do think it's related to dealing with sin, but they also think they have to add their own works into the mix. And um, hmm. I don't know. Toby Noble says... Um, have you heard of the biblical training app? It's a reliable source for accurate. Is it reliable um, for accurate and biblical education? And I really enjoy your videos and have your biblical thinking app. Yeah, that's right, guys. I have a Bible thinker app and you're, you can download it for free from the app store. And um, there it is. It's got a tons of stuff on it. Searchable. You can listen to audio or video. I don't know the biblical training app. I'm not familiar with it, Toby. So I'm sorry. Uh, it's the first I've heard of it. If, if someone else is familiar with it, please put comments in the comment section and letting... Um, Toby, know your thoughts. And if you're a weirdo, don't comment, please. Because sometimes you do. Uh, Duffy, David Duffy, I'm just playing. David Duffy says, uh, some say Jesus died so God may forgive and love us. Um, and he gives three scriptures here. And it says, these scriptures seem to say God's love led to the atonement. Did God's forgiveness, love for an enemy, or atonement come first? Interesting question. So did God love us because of the cross? Or did his love lead to the cross? I think that I would firmly say his love preceded the cross. His love for us precedes the cross. Relationship with him is post-cross. Or I'll say, um, whether it's chronologically post-cross, in our case it is, or, or it's logically post-cross, in, in that the cross establishes a relationship, restore relationship with God. But the love of God is what, is what motivated him to um, do what he did for us. I think that, that we can say that um, pretty clearly. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like the love is prior. Not God so loved his world, so loved the, loves the world because he gave his only son. Right? No, it's it's the love is, yeah, you get what I'm saying. Kevin Harper says, none of the early church quotes mentioned in PSA history video mentioned wrath. What is the earliest source that says Jesus dealt with or experienced God's wrath on the cross? Oh, that's a good question, Kevin. I really don't know. I, didn't, I mean, I haven't looked into that specifically, so I don't know. Um, and I struggle with that my, myself. Um, even, even toward, even during the series, I've become more solidified, but I was like, I totally affirm PSA. I don't know about the terminology of God's wrath poured out on Jesus. I don't usually use, use that term. Um, and I, I don't think I ever use that term that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. I don't like the way it's phrased. I personally don't. doesn't mean it's not even true. I don't like the implications that you feel when you hear it. And I think a lot of this is about the implications you feel. I, I think they can be a little tricky. So what I will say, for, and I did this in my last video, is that I, I, I established through the book of Romans that what Jesus experienced on the cross was definitely the punishment for our sins, death, 
and that that is connected to the concept of wrath, that what Jesus went through is, we'll put it this way. Romans puts it this way. When you go through death because of your sins, that is God's wrath. And I established this in last week's video. Then when Jesus went through it, he experienced death for our sins and that results in saving us from God's wrath. It seems reasonable to say that what Jesus experienced on the cross then was wrath. But it wasn't just the Father's wrath to the Son. It was the Trinity's wrath, right? The, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit's wrath. Um, so I do. I would affirm that it's true that Jesus experienced wrath on the cross. I believe that that's the case. I think scripture affirms it. I'm, I'm hesitant about the language poured out wrath. The Father poured out his wrath on the Son. That language... It may be true, but it might, while it's true, it might give people a wrong understanding um, at the same time. Uh, anyway, I, forgive me if I'm not helping you here. You can see some of my own struggle with some of the terminology here, trying to be biblically faithful, but also trying to communicate it in ways that don't confuse people. So, yeah. Um, but as far as the early church fathers, uh, I don't know. Couldn't tell you. Yeah. Um, uh, Papyrus says... Doesn't modern culture's push toward political cor correctness influence those who exaggerate the violence aspect of Christ's sacrifice for us? I think absolutely it does. I think the, the push towards political correctness is we're in a place now where you don't have to prove people are bad. You have to say they're bad. You know, you don't have to show that somebody's wrong. You have to vilify them and call them names. And once you get on someone's naughty list, their world has no grace for those people. And so, um, yeah, I think that that is influencing the, the rhetoric big time. Uh, Kevin Harper says, in the last video, Galatians 3 was used to say that Jesus experienced God's wrath. The context is about crucifixion. Is crucifixion ever attributed to God? See Luke 24, 47. Um, I'm trying to understand that. Okay, is crucifixion... Okay, I, 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 there's multiple questions there. There's a statement and a question. So I'm trying to think how this statement works with the question. Um, I did try to establish that wrath is related to the cross. We just talked about that a, a second ago. Um, and used Galatians because it talks about the curse of the law. But the question to follow up those points is, is crucifixion ever attributed to God? And that I think is an odd question because I would just say, why does that matter? Um, why does it matter if crucifixion is attributed to God? Like, I don't understand why that ma why that matters. Like if, if God, if I don't have a specific scripture that says God causes crucifixions or something like that, it, it doesn't seem to connect. Um, yeah, I, I the verse you gave in Luke 24, 7, it says um, that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day rise, Jesus says he must be crucified. He'll be delivered in the hands of sinful men. I just don't think that that really has bearing on the issue. Yeah, so I'm going to say I think that this is like a, a question that may not be related to the issue of God's wrath. Uh, David Dufty says, hey, Mike, uh, you said it is God who suffers. Does this deny the distinctions in the Trinity? It is the in the economic Trinity. Is it not only the son who dies? Am I confused between modalism and tritheism? Um, it is God who suffers. Does does this deny the distinctions in the Trinity? Well, it, it would be if I said it was the father who suffered on the cross. I'm just saying, don't stop saying Jesus is God while he's on the cross. He doesn't stop being God on the cross. That's it. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all active in the things that were happening on the cross. I, I don't see the problem that's there. Um, in the economic trinity, is it not only the Son who dies? Yes. 
it is it isn't it is only the son economic means like the what what different uh, members of the trinity do right um the son is the one who is incarnate not the father so yeah only the son so yeah i'm not sure where the confusion is or i hope my words have helped you a little bit um, sometimes it's like you don't get a chance to share as much in your question as you'd like um, brian kelter says in john 12 um, if Jesus blinded their eyes so they could not see and believe, how did some still believe? That's an interesting question. Let's look at the passage. John twelve thirty nine, and you also quote verse forty and forty two. So, um, it says here that um, after Jesus gives his parables and the people are not believing in him, it says in John twelve thirty nine. Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah again said, he's blinded their hearts their eyes uh, and has hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Um, I guess I would, I would understand those passages as to mean that um, many didn't believe in Christ, at least the majority, and that's, that's what we see in, in, in the Gospels, that there isn't a majority of, of Jewish recepting of Christ. It's a minority. And so, yeah, the blindness would refer to the people who didn't believe, didn't receive him. John 1 starts that way. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. I think it's speaking sort of in a generalistic sense. Generally, Jesus was not accepted and received, but there were plenty of people who believed in him, like Nicodemus, for instance. So, yeah, I would just qualify those statements as, some, but not all. Um, Sean Barnes <clears throat> says a uh, question. Um, why do people say that Jesus's earthly ministry was only to the Jews? Didn't he also come to minister to the Gentiles? And he gives a couple scriptures. I I'll just, for the sake of time, because we're going long on this stream and I want to wind it up. Um, I want to say this, that Jesus, he did say, I've come uh, only to the house of Israel. But he also talks about having sheep of this, that are not of this fold and I would think that that would include the Gentiles, and we could have a debate over that passage. Um, but but we recognize this that the what Paul is like saying salvation first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. The idea was first fulfill the promises to Israel, put the the um, death and resurrection of Christ in the context of the Old Testament and God's covenant and promises to Israel, so that it's fulfilling God's commitment. I'm going to do this for you, Israel but it will spread to the whole world as a result. So it wasn't like Jesus didn't come for the Gentiles. It was rather Jesus came and his plan was first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Not only Jews, but first Jews, then Gentiles. And now, of course, the gospel goes to the whole world. Um, okay, pseudonym says, how do we rec uh, encourage those who oppose biblical theology to be charitable in their engagement with it? Seems a lot of these guys just aren't charitable to what they dislike. Um, that's a good question. I don't really know how to encourage it. I, I think that we can be, try to be charitable to them. I, I don't know if I did that successfully in this video. Um, uh, I, I feel like I had to pull the gloves off a little bit because what they're doing is amounts to blasphemy against the work of the cross. And so I want to strongly come against the things that they're saying. And I think that, um, that those who tend to interact with these guys, they're so nice to them that they just give them a platform for driving their rhetoric into people's minds and not confronting it well enough. So, but, but yeah, maybe, yeah. How do, how do I, I don't know, man. I don't know how to control the way those guys talk. They just do what they do. Yeah. Maybe make a video like this and show it to them. 
see how they don't care. All right, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna call it a day for today, um, and uh, I appreciate you guys being here. We're, we're gonna continue this uh, penal substitution stuff next week. We're gonna dig back into that. If you've been interested in visiting my Sunday evening service, I teach every Sunday at 5 p.m. at Hosanna Christian Fellowship at 16523 Bellflower Boulevard. If you want to come and tell me how wrong I am, you can come and tell me there at 5 p.m. on Sunday nights. And it's a small study. That's the one I teach. That's the video I put up on every Monday. But we're going to be off for the last two weeks of, of December. The last two Sundays of December, we're not we're not meeting. I take that time to just like do a bunch of other things that I need to get done at the end of the year. And um, yeah, so Lord bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry that I didn't get to more of your questions. It's just the length of these videos is so long. I don't want to torture anybody. And um, we'll do more. We'll do more Q&A stuff in the future as well. Maybe even in December here. So thank you so much. Keep your eyes on the cross. Don't be embarrassed about the truth of Christianity just because people can make fun of it. No matter how good and true something is, people can always make fun of it. Um, and that, of course, is exactly the kind of tactic the enemy uses. So, okay.